Well, good morning, church. Good to be with you again this morning. Great to gather with you in this way. And uh, I hope and trust that those songs were uh, as much a blessing to you as they were to me and to us who are here. And uh, props to Tim French for putting all that together. And we're just so grateful and trust that that's an encouragement to you. I want to also just reach out to those who may be tuning in for the first time. We want to welcome you this morning to our service. So glad that you're here and we want to be of some uh, value to you and to your faith. And so we trust that this time will be very well invested on, on your part. Uh, church, I'm excited to be able to return to our series in the book of Acts this morning. Uh, we have, uh, if you've been with us for a while, you know that we have worked our way through Acts for many weeks and months, and then we took a bit, bit of a, uh, a break from the study, but we return today to Acts chapter 24. So if you would take your Bible, please, and meet me in Acts chapter 24, uh, that's where we will be this morning. Chapter 24 finds the Apostle Paul in Caesarea, a, a city located about 70 miles north of Jerusalem on the western bank of the Mediterranean Sea. Paul is in Caesarea by order of a Roman commander stationed in Jerusalem whose name is Claudius Lysias. For nearly two weeks, Lysias has detained Paul while trying to settle a dispute that certain Jewish leaders had against him. And this was no small disagreement, though. They hated Paul, and, and if not for Lysias' intervention, they likely would have killed him twice already. So, when Lysias hears of a conspiracy to ambush Paul and, and take a third swing at his life, he decides to transfer the apostle to a Roman governor named Felix. Basically, he's pushing him up the chain of command. Now, of course, from Paul's perspective, it's all been one long runaround. Ever feel like that? Like you're just being passed from one person to the next, but, but getting nowhere? Like those automated menus, for instance, when you call tech support, you just want a live human being, but each time you speak into the phone, either it doesn't understand you or it sends you down the wrong path, often leaving you back where you started, or worse yet, oh, this is the worst, it hangs up on you altogether. Or those occasions when you're, when you're in a store and you're looking for something specific, and so you ask an employee where it's located, and immediately, almost immediately, you know you've made a huge mistake because rather than saying, I don't know, or, or I'll find out, they take you all over the store, looking down the same aisles, scouring the same shelves that you've already searched many, many times. Nobody likes to run around. And yet here was Paul. Falsely accused and detained and put before one court after another, but getting nowhere. No justice. No probable cause. And so what we have here in Acts chapter 24 is the third of five defenses that Paul will make declaring his innocence. He's already appeared before Lysias already appeared before the Jewish court, the council, the Sanhedrin. 
And now as he appears before Governor Felix, we come to learn something quite applicable to our lives. Namely, that Paul's confession of faith is ours also, even as the call to faith is universal as well. And so will you turn with me please to Acts chapter 24, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul, and when he, Paul, had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, Reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere. We accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city, neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. And while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia They ought to be here before you and make an accusation should they have anything against me or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them that it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, then I'll decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he, Paul, should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control, In the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. 
At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you again for the gathering of your church this morning, for the privilege and honor and really the joy it is to come together even in this way. And we ask that as we now open our Bibles, would you open us to its truth and impress impress it upon our lives for our good and your glory. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, five days after Paul's arrival in Caesarea, the Jewish entourage from Jerusalem arrived also. And they had hired a spokesman named Tertullus, basically a a hotshot lawyer who was brought in to make their case on their behalf. Paul's accusers were relentless in trying to end him, and if they couldn't kill him, then perhaps Tertullus could persuade the governor to do it for them. I think the chapter here can be just loosely divided into four parts. There's the accusation or allegation that is in verses 1 through 9. Then we have the defense in verses 10 through 21, the delay in verses 22 and 23, and finally the indecision in 24 through 27. So let's walk through this chapter together, and then I want to close with two main observations that I trust will be of some value to us. Tertullus begins with some introductory words that, as I'm sure you've probably noticed, they were just dripping with disingenuous flattery. He heaps praise upon Felix, praise for his foresight and his many reforms made on Israel's behalf, talked about how grateful Israel was for Felix, but of course this was totally dishonest to the core. History reveals that Felix was anything but a peacekeeping man. He was ruthless. And because it was his job to enforce Pax Romana, he was quick to end any and every threat of disturbance. Any peace enjoyed by Israel during that time was always under the threat of death because as soon as Israel stepped out of line, Roman domination took over. The Jewish people largely detested Roman occupation, so Tertullus's claim that everywhere we accept this with all gratitude is just completely false. Tertullus is stroking Felix's ego, trying to get on his good side. But finally, thankfully, he gets to the specific charges against Paul, and there are three of them. First, in verse 5, he accuses Paul of stirring up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. Uh, He's like a plague, this man, Tertullus said. Wherever he goes, trouble follows. He's a cancer to society and a threat to the peace that Rome is trying so hard to maintain. The second charge is also in verse 5 that Paul is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. This is also very deliberate. They want to convince 
Felix that Paul isn't mainstream. And although Jesus was from Nazareth, Nazareth Nazareth itself was not the most well-respected place. It was considered podunk. It was sketch. In effect, they're saying that, that Paul had formed an aberrant cult comprised of disreputables that threaten orthodoxy and social order. And these first two charges, they culminate in the third, which is seen in verse 6, namely that Paul was found profaning the temple. None of this is factual, of course, but they didn't care. So in verse 8, Tertullus closes the argument with more nauseating pandering, suggesting that given Felix's immense wisdom, it shouldn't take him much time at all to find Paul guilty on all counts. And the other, joy, uh, the other Jews joined in also at this time, affirming that all these things were so. So having heard from the prosecution, Felix turns to Paul and, and nods for him to speak. And what follows is Paul's defense in verses 10 through 21. Paul also uh, began by acknowledging Felix's authority, notice, but unlike Tertullus, he doesn't cater to it. Instead, there's just a simple nod of respect, a recognition of Felix's long tenure and a statement of Paul's desire to plead his own case. Despite the continual onslaught from every side and every direction, Paul remained consistent in his confession of innocence. As to the first charge of stirring up riots, he notes in verses 11 through 13 that it's only been 12 days since his return to Jerusalem, and he spent most of that time under arrest. He never stirred the crowd, never caused any trouble. In fact, as, as some of you may recall from chapter 21, they were the ones, the Jewish leaders, they were the ones who incited a crowd against him. Regarding the second charge of being sectarian and divisive and cultish, he responds in verses 14 through 16. I worship the God of our fathers, he said, believing everything in the law and prophets. Basically, I'm very orthodox. I read the same scriptures our people have read for generations. I worship the same God. I believe in the same resurrection. Paul was like them in these ways, but unlike them, he did so, verse 14, according to the way. That is the way of Jesus. Now let's press in here a little bit. We know that Paul was an expert in Jewish teaching in the Jewish scriptures, he upheld them, defended them, knew them thoroughly, and he came to learn he came to learn that the Jewish scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament, that they presuppose and point to Christ. You see, the books of the law reveal two basic truths: first, that we cannot keep it, and second, uh, that Jesus can and did. So the prophets urge that we see our need for God, that we turn from our disobedience and place our hope in this Messiah. You see, because Jesus is anticipated in the Old Testament, Paul wasn't guilty of some aberrant theology. In fact, 
he was more orthodox than they were. He then addresses the third charge in verses 17 through 21. They allege that he defiled the temple. Not so. He went to the temple that day to bring alms and to make an offering. Furthermore, remember, he was actually participating in a vow of purification with other Jerusalem Jews. He even paid their temple expenses from his own pocket. But certain Jews from Ephesus, from the province of Asia, they had it out for Paul. They'd been against him for years, and when they saw him in the temple that day, they pounced. They're the ones who stirred the crowd, Paul intimated. And in fact, they should be here to testify themselves. And if not them, then it's on those who are present to provide some actual evidence. But they had none. The only thing they had is the unrest of the council when Paul stated his belief in the resurrection and that's only because others from their own assembly believed the same and actually came to Paul's defense. So all of these allegations against Paul were completely baseless. He knew it and so did they. And you would certainly assume that Felix knew it too. Given his long tenure and experience as judge and the obvious lack of concrete evidence to support any of their claims. But rather than declaring Paul's innocence or even dismissing the case altogether, he delayed the verdict. According to verses 22 and 23. And instead, he called for the commander from Jerusalem. Now maybe he's playing both sides. Trying to placate both Paul and his accusers in some way. After all, maybe the Jews could take some solace in the fact that Paul remained in custody. And perhaps, maybe by extending certain freedoms to Paul, even while incarcerated, maybe, just maybe, Felix would incur some favor from him as well. On the other hand, calling for Lysias makes sense too. We call this due process today. Lysias was a key witness in these allegations, so only after hearing his testimony did Felix agree to decide the case. Whatever his intentions were, though, Things become much, much clearer in the next section, in the final few few verses of this chapter, because nothing is said of Lysias, strangely, though presumably he came and testified as expected. Instead, we learn of these frequent exchanges between Paul and Felix, which at times included Felix's wife, Drusilla, as well. Now, unlike her husband, who ascended the ranks in surprising fashion, Drusilla came from Jewish royalty. We know from historical record that she was one of three daughters of Herod Agrippa I, the same Herod who had James murdered. Her great uncle was Herod Antipas, who beheaded John the Baptist. And her great-grandfather was Herod the Great, 
who was king when Jesus was born and who ordered the slaughter of the infant boys in Bethlehem. So you can imagine that Drusilla likely heard a lot about Jesus through her upbringing, through the years, even from within her own family, most of which was certainly inaccurate and heavily, heavily slanted. But now she and Felix, amazingly, they have the opportunity to hear more and to hear the truth. This time from the Apostle Paul himself. And I just find this a good reminder to us. For us to realize that when you speak to others about matters of faith, you are another important link in the chain. Others have gone before you and and will come after you. And we don't know. We don't know what's been said or what will be said or even how accurate it is. We don't know this individual's level of understanding when it comes to Jesus. And yet even in these these unplanned moments, God brings opportunity into our lives to be a voice of truth into other people's faith journey. That's Paul. Paul. Paul never imagined that he'd be sitting in a Caesarean jail cell. And yet here he is, exactly there, sharing faith in Jesus with Felix and Drusilla. And we're told that he reasoned with them about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment ought to listen in on those conversations. Can you imagine? Imagine Paul speaking on righteousness. How we've all turned from God in pursuit of our own agenda uh, about how none is righteous, not even one. None of us is right before God in this way, but we can be made right by trusting in Jesus. We can throw aside the rags of self-righteousness and be clothed in his righteousness instead. They talked about self-control. Probably because Felix and Drusilla didn't have any and everyone knew it. And if we're honest and humble enough to admit it, we don't have much of it either. Which is why we're so prone to head down wrong paths, the inability to control ourselves and our, and our selfish tendencies emphasizes our need for another, our need for a helper, for the helper, the Holy Spirit. Because as we've all experienced, self-determination or self-will or willpower, that can only last for so long, only get you so far. It's only as we submit ourselves to the prevailing influence of the Spirit of God can we practice true and lasting self-control. Then the coming judgment. They reasoned about this too. About the truth that a day is coming when we will all appear before God. He is the judge of all the earth and in that day no one will be found innocent before him on their own merit. 
Salvation comes only to those who have taken hold of God's gift of Jesus. Scripture says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It says that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in fact to save the world through him. It says that whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. We're already in a state of condemnation. Our sins have earned that for us because we have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Paul, clearly, Paul was calling them to repentance and faith. But Felix grew uncomfortable with all of this and dismissed Paul and Paul's message. I'll summon you when it's convenient, he basically said, while at the same time hoping for a bribe of some sort, as verse 26 reads. So he sent for Paul often. They talked often. They conversed often. They reasoned together often. Paul would be summoned and then sent back. And this back and forth continued for two years. And after two years, and no bribe, and no evidence with which to keep him, and as a favor to the Jews, Felix left Paul's case undecided to be dealt with by his successor, Porcius Festus. Felix's indecision cost Paul two more years of unjust imprisonment, but even worse, it likely led to Felix's own eternal demise. And there are many takeaways from this passage. But I'm struck by two specific observations that deal with our confession and our call. With Paul, I think in the, in the Apostle Paul we see a, a confession of faith. And with Felix... We find a call to faith. And so I just want to close with these two observations in mind. The number one is this. Paul's confession is ours too. A confession of faith, you see, it's a statement of belief. And, and if we want to make it a little bit more personal, it's, it's a statement of, of what you believe My observation here is that Paul's statement of personal belief, his his confession of faith, which is found in verses 14 through 16, is consistent with basic Christianity, and therefore, it's your confession too. First, in verse 14, Paul identified as a follower of Jesus. That's how people were often distinguished In those days, depending on which rabbi or teacher or philosopher they followed. For Christians, though, it was, I follow Jesus. In fact, that's what makes you Christian, that you are going the way of Christ. 
So when you talk about your walk with Jesus, you know, we often do that. We'll ask each other, hey, how is it with your walk? How's it going with your walk? When we talk about our walk with Jesus, let's just remember that it's not about bringing Jesus along on our path, but following him on his. Second, Paul worshipped God as he is revealed in the Bible. Uh, I worship the God of our fathers, he said, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. Many, many people today claim to worship God, but in fact they don't. And the reason they don't is because they don't know God as he's revealed in Scripture. You see, we don't get to define or imagine God as we'd like. God doesn't need our help in that way. He doesn't need our help in any way. Scripture isn't a book of moral platitudes. It's God's self-revelation. The first words in the Bible are, in the beginning, God. And among the last words in the Bible are surely I am coming soon. Scripture begins and ends with God and everything in between is about God. It's about who He is and and who we are and about our relation to Him and everything around us. It's about His plan for this world, for creation, a plan to redeem us from our disobedience and spiritual death. The third thing we notice about Paul's confession is that he was driven by the sure hope of resurrection. He believed that Jesus died for sins and rose from the dead, and therefore he believed in the final resurrection of the dead, both the just and the unjust. Some will be resurrected to eternal life, those who trust in Jesus, others to eternal despair, those who don't. Paul believed there was more to this life There was more than this life only and that the life to come is even more real and far superior. He says, I I have a hope in God that there will be a resurrection. And I want you to notice it's not I hope in God. Like I hope this will come true. It's I have a hope in God. You see, hope wasn't just something Paul did, it's what he had, it's what he received, and so have we when we trust in Jesus. We have this sure hope of life with God apart from sin and death, just as it was at the very beginning. And then then the fourth aspect of Paul's confession here is in verse 16, where we find that Paul kept a clear conscience between Uh, both God and man. And, And I think another way to say that is that Paul took the two greatest commandments, took them to heart, and he lived them. He loved the Lord his God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. He loved God with everything he had, and he loved other people as much or more than himself. Is this your confession today? Can you say, I follow Jesus. I'm going his way. 
I worship God as He's revealed in Scripture. I have a sure hope of everlasting life with God. And my conscience is clear because between now and then, I will love Him and others with everything I've got. Is it your confession? Or are you like Felix? who personifies the second observation, which is knowing about Jesus is not the same as trusting in Jesus. I want you to hear that. Knowing about Jesus is not the same as trusting in Jesus. It's actually somewhat surprising, if I'm honest with you, that we're told here in verse 22 that Felix, even before meeting the Apostle Paul, had a rather accurate knowledge of the way. You see, somewhere in Felix's past, he had learned about Jesus, something about Jesus, and Maybe others had talked to him about Jesus or he picked it up through the grapevine. And even more striking is the things he learned about Jesus were accurate. But even though he had a rather accurate knowledge of the way, it appears he never followed the way. Felix knew a lot about Jesus and even, and, and even knew the truth. He knew those things were true. He had a good, solid, solid truth-based, working understanding of who Jesus was and what Jesus did and the increasing impact that Jesus was having on the lives of countless people, but it got him nowhere. Felix was married to a woman who likely heard about Jesus her entire life, but it got him nowhere. Felix had one-on-one conversations, many of them, one-on-one conversations with the Apostle Paul, the most renowned missionary and theologian ever, who reasoned with him about faith in Christ, but it got him nowhere. Why? Because Felix chose comfort and convenience instead. I'll send for you when I have opportunity, he'd say to Paul, whenever their conversation got a little too personal for his liking. How foolish. The opportunity was right there multiple times. Convenience is the enemy of conversion. It's not enough to know about Jesus. To know Him, you must trust Him. And you trust Him to the degree that you follow Him. So, how is Paul's confession like ours. 
for those of us who are Christians. It's like ours in that we follow Jesus too. That we also worship God as he's revealed in scripture and that we, we share in the same hope of resurrection life. And so let us love God and others and keep our conscience clear. And how is the call to faith universal? It's universal in that it applies to everyone, especially those who remain unbelieving. You see, we all share in the same basic need as Felix, the need for Jesus. We've all heard the same truth as Felix, the truth of Jesus. Even this morning we have. So at some point, we must each respond by trusting in Jesus. And you can do that today. Right where you are, just as you are, hear the call and call out to him. Turn from going your way and go the way of Jesus instead. Paul's confession of faith is ours also, even as the call to faith is universal as well. Amen. God, I want to thank you for the opportunity, the moments we've shared this morning in the scripture. I trust that you have that you have done what only you can do in our lives, in our minds, and in our hearts. And I just pray that you would take your word now and, and apply it to our lives. I would pray for those who are listening this morning who already have a trust relationship with you through Jesus. And I pray that you would give us the strength to follow him uh, on the daily, that we would that we would not be um, that we would not be tempted to wander from his path, but rather that we would uh, remain in faithful obedience to him who is so very, very faithful to us. Give us the desire to learn more of you as you're revealed in Scripture so that our understanding would be would be accurate and true and and then would you take this hope of resurrection life and continue to uh, implant it in us, impress it upon us so that we would live in a way where the resurrection matters to us, that that would be seen by those around us. God, help us to love you and to love others with everything we have and are so that our conscience can be clean as well. And then I want to just say a prayer for those who may be listening this morning and they're coming to the realization that that they've never actually come to trust in Christ. Maybe they know a lot about Jesus. Maybe over the years they've collected many truths about Jesus, but they've never acted on those truths. And so I would just ask that even now, wherever they are, whoever they are, 
I just pray that you would make your call upon their lives very clear and help them to respond in faith. Uh, May they be not like Felix, who had the opportunity and let it slip by, but may they see this as a divine gift from, from God even now and take hold of Christ by faith. And so we bless you and thank you for this time. We praise you for this time. In the name of Jesus, amen.